0: Thanks C-SPAN for being here, and uh, today uh, we should have a very interesting panel talking about the implications of walking away from the JCPOA, the impact on allies and adversaries. If you see the photo that we use here at Hudson for this event, Mr. President, that's not our doing, that's Iran, that's the regime. The regime picked that photo, so don't hold that against the Hudson Institute. All right. I'd like to introduce our panelists. Uh, first off, I'm Mike Pregent. I'm here at the Hudson Institute. I'll be moderating this panel and also participating. To my immediate right is Michael Ledeen, uh, Freedom Scholar, Foundation for Defense of uh, Democracies, and also the co-author with General Mike Flynn for Field of Fight. And it's great to have you here. Uh, next to him is Mikaela Dodge, Senior Policy Analyst at the Allison Center for Foreign Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Her focus is on nuclear weapons, and and nuclear defense uh, policy, also missiles as well. Uh, And then to her right is Ube Shabander, somebody I've known for a long time. Uh, We both served in the Defense Intelligence Agency together. We both worked for General Petraeus, Ordierno and specifically H.R. McMaster, uh, and specifically looking at Iranian malign influence in Iraq, uh, specifically the RGC Quds Force. So Ube is a fellow at the International Security Uh, Center at New America and it's great to have him here. And of course we have uh, Richard Goldberg, Senior Advisor, Foundation for Defense and Democracies. Uh, What's interesting here is he was a lead negotiator in the Senate for sanctions against Iran, the toughest sanctions put on the regime that brought him to the table that may likely go back into effect. So thanks for being here today. So we'll just quickly talk about what's happened over the last Two, two to three weeks. We have an incoming Secretary of State, former CIA director, uh, Pompeo, and we also have uh, Ambassador Bolton going into the National Security uh, advisor role. Uh, he will go into that position on Monday, and Pompeo may be in his position as early as uh, two weeks from now. Uh, probably probably close, uh, close to the first week of May, hopefully before the May 12th deadline. But the President has his Iran team in place, and uh, we're looking forward to hearing from our panelists on what that means uh, the day after May 12th, the implications, again, uh, for U.S. foreign policy, for Iran, for our allies, and for Iran's allies, our adversaries, uh, specifically Russia and China. So with that, I'm going to give it to Rich Goldberg, and he's going to give us a scene setter on what's likely to happen in the next month.
1: Thanks so much. Thanks for having me and, and all of us. Uh, I think it's a very timely panel. Uh, I'll try to make this uh, relatively quick as a scene center, because I think the coverage of this is, is pretty widespread. So I think people know what we're talking about. Don't need to rehash uh, all of the debate over the Iran nuclear deal itself. Uh, most of us lived through that uh, for a couple of years. Uh, but when we started at the beginning of 2017 with a new president who, during his campaign for presidency, called the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, one of the worst deals ever negotiated, in his words, Uh, you knew that there was going to be some sort of change in policy. Uh, The administration underwent a year-long review of what uh, Iran's strategy would look like, and then in October, uh, finally some announcements, some some action. Now up until then, uh, from the administration's perspective and just an objective view, We've seen the Iranian regime use the cover of the nuclear deal uh, to expand a lot of its non-nuclear illicit activities. Under the nuclear deal itself, obviously they were allowed to continue certain R&D, missile program that we'll talk about was not covered by the nuclear deal and we saw at least 23 tests of ballistic missiles since the nuclear deal was adopted, uh, great advance uh, on their missile program. We've seen them move throughout the region uh, with physical presence of the IRGC and others, whether it's uh, with the Houthis in Yemen that are receiving direct training from Iran and missiles that are now raining down on Riyadh, uh, destabilization efforts in Bahrain, uh, the Shia militias backed by Iran, obviously very active and playing a role now in Iraqi politics, as we see leading up to the Iraqi election, Uh, in Syria. Obviously, a doubling down to save the Assad regime, both through Hezbollah, but more importantly, through the advancement of both Shia militias, but IRGC commanders and troops on the ground. We see IRGC missile production facilities popping up in Syria, even in Lebanon, which has raised alarm bells uh, in Jerusalem uh, as far as the security to Israel's north Uh, and the future of an indigenous Iranian missile production effort uh, in Syria or Lebanon. We've seen uh, Iran basically trying to form what they call the Shia Crescent, uh, starting from Yemen and going all the way around to the Mediterranean and Lebanon. The president in October uh, did something uh, that was controversial uh, on Capitol Hill and elsewhere among our allies, and that is uh, used a provision of uh, a U.S. law that uh, required uh, regular review of the nuclear deal uh, and triggered something called decertification, which basically meant that he sent a letter to Congress saying that in, in his view, the president's view, the Iran nuclear deal was not worth the sanctions relief we were providing for our national security. That combined with the designation of the IRGC as a terrorist entity. Uh, we started seeing a destabilization inside Iran and in their economy. Uh, the currency, the rial, uh, started plummeting. And we realized that despite a couple of years of economic stability, increased investment and trade, now suddenly there was a chilling effect from this decertification and a little bit beneath the surface of vulnerability inside the regime. Uh, that led to uh, the next phase that we've, we've seen. Uh, over around New Year's and ever since, uh, people taking to the streets in Iran in protests against the government. And now we see the president in January 12th making a statement that he has waived sanctions for the last time against the regime. Uh, The Central Bank of Iran sanctions that have to be renewed with a waiver in order to be compliant with the U.S. obligations under the nuclear deal. Uh, every 120 days, came up January 12th, the President said this is the last time I'm waiving these sanctions, and if I don't see a change to the nuclear deal to account for Iran's long-range missiles, uh, inspections of their military sites, which has not happened yet, uh, and also the elimination of the so-called sunsets of the deal, that is, provisions of the deal that go away within eight to ten years, and making those provisions permanent that he would reimpose the Central Bank of Iran sanctions on May 12th. Ongoing negotiations in Europe right now to see if the E3 – UK, France, Germany, uh, also Italy, maybe an E4 – can come to common ground with the U.S. on those conditions. Uh, All reports so far is that they are well short of being able to meet the president's goals. And so with the two new personnel decisions, uh, that Mike talked about, we've set the stage now for the likely exit of uh, the US from the nuclear deal and the potential for reimposition of sanctions, at least on the central bank on May 12th, and perhaps much more. Thanks, Rich. Thanks for setting that up. So, so
0: the panel wants to focus on what happens the day after we walk away and what's being put in place already. Um, what the JCPOA has allowed Iran to do since 2015 is continued to destabilize the Middle East under the protections of the JCPOA, continue to develop its ballistic missile program under the protections of the G- JCPOA. And if it doesn't change, they would become an economic power, a, a military power, and, and while continuing to develop their ballistic missile capability, and at the end of that sunset clause, which is what now, 10 years away, be able to put a nuclear warhead on top of one of those missiles. With the JCPOA, they're six months away from breakout. Without the JCPOA, they're six months away from breakout. Uh, Taking the JCPOA takes away those protections. I'd like to ask Ube to talk about some of those destabilizing events that have taken place since the JCPOA went into effect, specifically about Assad's position before the JCPOA and Assad's position afterwards.
2: Well, I think we can certainly say with confidence that in many ways Syria, is both Iran's Achilles' heel and it's also a battlefield where Iran has achieved perhaps the most success in the region, um, in addition to not including Iraq. But the question here is, will a major recalibration of the so-called Iranian nuclear deal or a negation of it in this entirety lead to a new, massive regional conflict? So on one hand, while I think that certainly the Iran nuclear deal more than likely averted a major all-out war at the time, I think that it's also equally true that the, this deal has more than likely set the stage for an even more devastating regional conflict, and we can see that playing out in Syria today. On one hand, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards have suffered the great, their greatest amount of casualties in Syria, to include the overall commander that was appointed directly by Qasem Soleimani himself for those forces in Syria. So the Iranians have borne a significant amount of, of damage in Syria. So and because of that, they're certainly not going to uh, leave anytime soon, and they're, and they're not going to the view, view as having sacrificed the most in that fight in Syria on behalf of their proxy, Bashar al-Assad, and uh, to advance their strategic objective, which is to build an uninterrupted line of supply from Tehran, through Iraq, into eastern Syria, and then into the Mediterranean Sea and Lebanon's Bekaa Valley. Is that in effect right now? I think that is absolutely in effect. That is absolutely in effect. Having that land route through Iraq and into Syria and into the Bekaa Valley, Enables Iran to move more weapons, more personnel, more ammunition for their uh, proxies in Syria, which number around 10,000 amalgamated uh, uh, regional Shia forces from the Arabian Gulf, from Afghanistan, that are all, all trained by the Iranian Revolutionary Guards and fighting in Syria. So, what does this have to do ultimately with the nuclear deal? Impunity. We've seen a significant amount of impunity by Iran's actions in the region, in Syria. We have a horrific humanitarian situation where over 10 million Syrians have either been displaced or forced into becoming refugees, a million migrants forced into Europe, a humanitarian disaster not seen on the scale since World War II. And this is not only going to have regional implications, but international ones as well. So you can't contain what's happening in Syria despite that containment policy being the de-facto Obama policy for at least three years while they were covertly negotiating the nuclear deal with Iran. So that's – looking at what's happening in Syria today, we can confidently say that it is a, 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 a byproduct, if not a, a consequence and a casualty of the nuclear deal. Will we see something much worse if the nuclear deal is cal, uh, recalibrated significantly or negated well, the question is, how much worse can it possibly get, right? Let's even if, I mean, let's, let's take under assumption that a, a political solution was negotiated in Syria. Do we believe that the Iranian Revolutionary Guards and their proxies in Syria and Iraq are going to go home? Do we believe that they're going to disarm or demobilize? Absolutely not. They're going to constantly look for other fronts, in Syria, uh, in uh, in Israel, in Jordan, looking to target American assets, allied assets, they're never going to stop. The IRGC has never demobilized in its history. So, while on one hand I do agree uh, with with the uh, with the analysis that when the deal was signed, it did avert a regional conflict, but that doesn't mean that another regional conflict on a much wider scale is going to become inevitable because of the sense of impunity that Qasem Soleimani has now been imbued with. They believe they're winning. They believe they have the wounds at their back, and that's a very dangerous situation for the entire region to be. Thanks, Ube.
0: All right, so nobody knows uh, the region better, at least on this panel, than than Michael Ledeen. Um, How has the JCPOA empowered the regime, and how would it
3: be affected if we walk away? Uh, While I'm a maverick in this crowd, uh, I don't think the JCPOA is very important. Uh, I think that Iran honors it when it feels like it and cheats on it when it doesn't. Um, there, There was a recent article I wrote about, it really caught my attention, about the Israeli bombing of the Syrian nuclear reactor. And uh, it was written by Dan Raviv and Yossi Melman. And they went through how the Israelis found out about this uh, nuclear reactor in Syria, right? As uh, the head of Mossad is quoted of saying in the article, this wasn't on the far side of the moon. This was in a country next to us where we had access and good information and so forth. And they found out about it by accident. I mean, it took a series of, uh, of lucky events so that they could actually be sure of what was going on there. Um, if the Israelis, who were very good at this sort of thing, and finding this kind of uh, information, couldn't find it, then my estimate of our ability to monitor the Iranian nuclear project is very pessimistic. I think they hide things all the time. I think there are things going on there that we don't know about. I think our intelligence on Iran over the years since the revolution has been awful, awful. We are surprised at every eruption of hatred of the regime, even though we ought to know just reading the newspapers, not having access to the clandestine covert sources uh, th- we see it going on all the time. There are riots every day right now in Akhfaz, every day, all the time, constant, nonstop. Troops going in, people being shot, people being arrested, and so on. Do we follow it here? Is it a component of policy? Does it get factored into what we're thinking, planning, doing, and so forth? I think not. So uh, to me, whether there's a you know treaty shmeding, as we used to say when I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it matters. I think they're going to do whatever they think they can get away with. And I note for the record, as we used to say, that, that this is an unsigned treaty. Nobody has signed it. It's not a treaty either. Right. There's a whatever it is. But nobody's put their name on it. It's not a formal agreement. It's something that people say when it feels good. Yes, uh, we honor it, we are doing it. So what is the situation? The situation is that Iran is at war with us, Iran is part of an international alliance which is trying to destroy the United States, uh, at a minimum drive it out of the Middle East, but basically kill us, destroy us. And, um, and that goes on worldwide. And that alliance runs from North Korea to Caracas. And it's a big deal. That's what we have to worry about. That's the war that's being waged against us. And that is the war that we're going to have to win. That war also
0: sounds expensive, and sanctions could actually limit a lot of the activity that, that Iran is, is, uh, is is behind in order to further destabilize Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, uh, Beirut, and of course also the things they're trying to do in Bahrain. What's interesting is when you talked about the Mossad uh, not not knowing about this nuclear reactor in Syria. The Mossad chief this morning in the Washington Post said he's a hundred percent sure that Iran, even under the JCPOA, is working towards a bomb. So in this case, hundred percent sure that Iran has these these uh these goals in sight and w- with you Mikel- Michela, um with the ballistic missile uh, program and what they've been able to develop and what they've been able to calibrate and make better since the jcpoa um do you see walking away from the jcpoa limiting any of that or?
4: um no not really um i think it's very interesting that you can use the ballistic missile program as one of the litmus tests of the Iranian intentions, because you would not be spending so much political technology and money capital on a ballistic missile program if you were not thinking about putting payload on the top of that missile. So the fact that we were told that somehow JCPOA will make dealing with the ballistic missile program easier and needs to be done separately as opposed to comprehensively in the context of the deal. Um, we are now seeing that that has not come into fruition. There is nothing easy about um, nego- negotiating the Iranian ballistic missile program, partly because the deal does not change underlying intentions why Iran would want to have a nuclear weapon. And so the Having, a mean, having means to deliver that weapon is, is just a critical component in the Iranian strategy, aside from uh, Iran utilizing ballistic missiles in regional contingencies, as, um, as, as, as rich outlined. Um, the administration is well aware of the importance of the ballistic missile program, uh, and it was one of the uh, conditions that the president wanted to see, or one of the flaws that he wanted to see fixed in the context of um, congressional law, in the context of European negotiations with um, with Iran, and there was some discussion as to how broad the scope of that fix should be. Should it be just long-range missiles? Uh, should it be um, shorter-range missiles that can target the U.S. Um, troops and U.S. allies in the region? Um, one of the one of the aspects that uh, also is not. Uh, quite emphasized is the Iranian-North Korean cooperation on both nuclear and ballistic missile programs. So today, uh, if you say missile defense, the next thought is North Korea. And we need to defend ourselves from North Korean ballistic missile capability. And by the way, North Korea can now reach almost the entirety of the United States, including Washington DC, potentially all the way down to Miami to Florida. Well, North Korea and Iran have close cooperation on these types of programs. And so if we are worried about North Korea, but not about Iran, we are missing a big piece. And we are opening ourselves to sort of vulnerability in our, in our thinking about um, protecting the homeland, protecting US allies, um, and how to go about fixing these things.
0: Right. Every, everything- each panelist has talked about so far has taken place under the JCPOA, um, Iran's ability to deploy forces to Syria, to set up these missile factories, to develop precision-guided missiles that are – and rockets that are focused on, on Israel – again, the first launch being the dummy rockets to deplete the Iron Dome and then have the precision missiles come in again. All of this has taken place under the JCPOA, and it goes back to Michael's point about the protests. These protests are ongoing, and they're not asking for government reforms. They're, they're asking for regime change. Uh, they're asking for regime change, and they're wondering where the $150 billion or the $100 billion went. And as mm-hmm. Mikaela said, it's towards ballistic missile technology. As Ube said, it's towards paying these proxies and developing these, the Shia crescent, the land bridge. And again, to reemphasize, an egg in Tehran costs 50 cents. That's a $5 egg here. That's paying $60 for a dozen eggs in the United States, which none of us would do. So even under the JCPOA, with with sanctions relief, Iran is squandering their assets on this adventurism. And the protests uh, highlight that. And what happens the day we walk away from the Iran deal and we impose sanctions back on the central bank of Iran. Iran. How does that impact everything that we've talked about? From, and I'll leave that to you, Rich. How does that impact everything we've talked about? This adventurism, ballistic missile, uh, you know, technology,
1: anyway. It's a potential game changer, uh, truly, because when we look at right before the JCPOA, one of the tragedies of the nuclear deal, was the increasing amount of leverage the United States had over Iran, and it was increasing rapidly. The Iranians wanted to talk, they wanted a deal, they wanted sanctions really fast. The combination of the central bank sanctions, which include the oil reductions, uh, along with uh, going after insurance and reinsurance and the tankers of Iran, dramatically drying up their revenue, locking down their foreign exchange reserves overseas. They were having a balance of of payments crisis. And all their banks had been disconnected, including the central bank, from the SWIFT system in Europe. Those two things together, the the central bank sanctions and the SWIFT disconnections, got their attention very fast, very fast. And combined with the existence of a credible military threat, uh, especially at the time from Israel, uh, they were looking for a way out to, to stabilize and to continue their program. Uh, under uh, legitimate international means. And that's what they got. Rather than keeping the pressure on and dealing with all of these issues at once, like Michaela's talking about, we gave away the pressure way too soon, came to the table having already given up the toughest sanctions, and you know, veto threats from the president against uh, prospective sanctions to try to give them some sort of edge at the, at the table. The Iranians are afraid of those sanctions, and the regime is. And if we see what's going on in Iran right now, if we see the plummet of the rial to record lows since October, right now what's going on, I mean, there is something going on inside that regime, inside that country, that is not clear to us here in the West. But if you look at all the signals, this would be the most fragile time to bring back the central bank sanctions. To completely destabilize the lifeblood of the regime financially. And after that, you you've completely flipped the leverage that we've lost that have led to all these other things that we're talking about. Right, thanks. Um, accelerators for regime change. So what you just talked
0: about, it sounds like an accelerator for, for pressure on the regime. Doesn't mean regime change, but pressure on the regime. Uh, you even have Iranian protesters now saying that the JCPOA was a bad bad deal because of, of the the way the, the regime actually squandered the money, squandered the opportunity, lost goodwill with the United States – day one, lost goodwill with the United States. But what I'd like to do is, is ask Michael about, uh, are the steps that the President – the steps that the President will take on May 12th or maybe even before that – again, Macron is coming here on the 24th. The, the, P, the, the European element of the P5 plus 1 is meeting mid-April. They're not likely to reach the president's goals. Macron is kind of the last best chance to save the the nuclear deal if he's able to convince the Europeans to to do this. Um, If we walk away on May 12th and put sanctions in place like Richard talked about, are those accelerators for regime change? Or what would be accelerators for
3: regime change in your opinion? I don't believe that uh, desire for regime change is necessarily linked to economic malaise. I do not believe that revolution, which is what we're talking about in the case of Iran, I don't think that revolution is one last, last desperate throw of the dice before everything fails and the society goes under. I think that revolution is an act of hope. I think that people who carry out revolutions think they can change the world for the better. That's why revolutions are typically the actions of young people, not older people. Older people know it's hopeless, it's going to be more of the same, and so on. So, uh, so I don't think that's the Lincoln. So, uh, and I say to my colleagues, especially the younger ones, um, you don't need sanctions to bring down Iran. Iran will bring down itself. They'll wreck it all by themselves. They're quite capable. Look what they do with the money, whatever money they get, whether it's sanctioned, not sanctioned, and so on. They steal it. And I mean, most of that stuff, yes, a lot of it goes to uh, Soleimani and the Quds Force and so forth, but a lot of it goes into bank accounts, uh, wherever, the Far East, increasingly, uh, some of it still in Switzerland, time told, and so on. It goes into their own pockets. They're stealing it. And that's what the, the people hate. The people hate not just that they don't get anything to eat, but they hate that not only are they not eating, but the mullahs are eating filet, the, the very best, living lives of luxury, and so on. And they want to change that world. Uh, When we brought down the Soviet empire, which is the real uh, apt comparison, uh, it wasn't so much sanctions. Yeah, we had sanctions on the Soviet Union, but they wrecked it all by themselves. Totalitarian systems fail. Machiavelli teaches us that tyranny is the most unstable form of government. Intellectuals believe in it. I think it's so wonderful. One person at the top says what to do. Tom Friedman has actually written this, that tyranny is wonderful, in the face of all of human history. Um, So acts that increase the chances of regime change, support the Iranian people, support the dissidents, call for the release of political prisoners. Uh, Talk to them. So far as I know, and uh, and Iran is a very hard country to know. Easy to be wrong. So so far as I know, we in the West have not talked to the leaders of the Iranian domestic opposition movement since uh, 2003. We haven't talked to them. I mean there, there was this uprising. There was then a communication which nobody ever talks about where they, communicated with Obama, and tried, uh, and tried to answer he, his questions about what was going on in Iran. And then when the clampdown started, contacts stopped. And I don't believe there have been contacts ever since. That's a fundamental mistake. We have to talk to them, and we have to talk to them both directly. People have to go there or meet with them elsewhere and find out what they want, and, uh, and also we have to talk to them by radio and television. And I have to say uh, that the most startling thing to, to me about the Trump administration and Iran is that they have not uh, completely uh, redone VOA, RFE, RL and so forth. It's the same people, it's the same programming, uh, not very effective. And, and they need better people in there. It was very important uh, with the Soviet Union. Worked very well, would work very well uh, in Iran, but it's not happening. They're not doing things. And, and I have my doubts, frankly, uh, whether the Trump people really have in mind an effective plan. I don't think that making the lives of the Iranian people more miserable will do it. I don't think that's good enough, nowhere near good enough, because I don't think they get what revolution is, how it happens, what our role is. We are the one revolutionary society in the world. That's why people come here. So we have to lead that revolution. We're not doing it. I don't either. I haven't heard it all along from the National Security Council, from the State Department, from the Defense Department, from the White House, I haven't heard it. What I have seen so far, and on this, uh, this is one of the few things on which we disagree, Mike, um, uh, the people in favor of revolution in Iran have all been fired from all three of those places. And the people who have been hired by the Trump administration, or by large, people were not in favor of that kind kind of policy. Uh, and I'm curious to see whether Bolton and Pompeo have different ideas, but I haven't seen them yet. All right. So uh, you had a comment, but
0: I'll,
2: yeah, I was just going to say that the, you know, unfortunately, revolution doesn't have a great track track record in the Middle East, and uh, especially someone who's been following the Syrian revolution so quickly. We also have to remember that there are always spoilers when it comes to these revolutions. Mm-hmm. And in 2012, a quick anecdote here. It's 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 indirectly related to the nuclear deal. When Qasem Soleimani, who's the commander of Quds Force, the Spath Pasadran, in 2012, made the decision. Sorry, came to the conclusion that the fall of Bashar al-Assad is going to be imminent if the IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, do not significantly increase their support to that regime. Now, remember, this is at a time when Iran was still economically was hurting. I mean, it was still suffering from the sanctions. They did not have the spare cash and personnel to all of a sudden just make that decision and surge their forces to what, even by Qasem Soleimani's own account, this is likely going, could more than likely be a losing battle. But, it's, but compare that mindset right, to the Western mindset. Qasem Soleimani believed that his ally was about to fall, but he didn't cut the rope. He doubled down and he tripled down at a time when it seemed all but <laughs> impossible that Bashar al-Assad would just somehow survive the Syrian revolution. But Qasem Soleimani made it happen. And he was able to bring supplies, material, the fighters, in record time into Syria to shore up the Assad regime. And Bashar Assad is still there today. So when we think of, when when we look at the potential scenarios of the day after, uh, a situation where either sanctions are reimposed on Iran, where the nuclear deal is significantly reformed, recalibrated, or potentially negated, always remember that Qasem Soleimani, when he viewed a desperate situation, his instinct was to push forward and to double down. So that's, I think, a very telling reaction by the leaders of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards in Syria in 2012, but I think it is very uh, can be very telling of what the reaction would be if the Iranian regime believes that the United States is bent on, Regime change and bring down the regime by reimposing crippling sanctions and essentially uh, neutralizing the nuclear deal with
3: Iran.
0: Michael, you wanted to follow up on something?
3: Yeah, just two things. Uh, it's not revolutions. Not only a failure in the Middle East. It's a failure everywhere. I mean, the. the it, uh, I'm a professional historian. Human history is a history of failure, and it's uh, why. Uh, we are more inclined to do evil than to do good. So generally, revolutions fail, all right? We don't have to credit uh, the Middle East for this. And secondly, uh, on your last point, quite right, but you left out the hero of the story. When Qasem Soleimani was desperate, what did he do? He went to Putin, and Putin saved him. Putin never gets credit for the great things he does, like uh, saving Assad and so forth. But Putin is the man in charge of that situation, and he's the one who bailed out the Iranians. And That's why when uh, Rouhani goes to talk to Putin, he gets humiliated. Mm. He gets five minutes, Mm -hmm. and that's it. So does Bashar al-Assad, by the way.
0: Right. Let's also yeah. remember the, the timeline there. When, when Soleimani went to see Putin, it was after the JCPOA was put in place, and after that $150 billion was released, when Iran could secure military contracts from Russia, when they could buy S-300s, when they could sec- Russia could secure oil rights in Iran, a- along with China. Uh, I want to go back to what you said about North Korea and Iran working together, because um, the Iran deal here, if, if the president walks away, a, a lot of the – A lot of the critics of the president uh, and supporters of the JCPOA say that will weaken us with North Korea. Uh, I don't believe that. I think Kim Jong-un wants a JCPOA-like deal, heavily laden with incentives, weak enforcement that allows him to keep his nuclear program. Um, What's your take? How does this uh, hurt North Korea if we walk away, or...?
4: I mean, considering that the JCPOA did not really have any kind of provisions with teeth that would prevent Iran from... Expanding nuclear programs and potentially working towards nuclear weapons technology, um, you know, North Korea would have loved a deal like that, and it got it. And by the way, it was negotiated by very similar people who negotiated the Iran deal. So you know, no wonder where that North Korea is where it is today, and in a way, that's a glimpse into the Iran's future regardless whether you have a deal or not. Because again, the deal does not fundamentally change Iran's um, intentions, Iran's desire for why it wants to have nuclear weapon capability.
0: Right, I mean, Kim Jong-un's father got an Iran deal under Clinton. And that's where North Korea is where it is today. Um, Talking about the protests, so these these protests are built for Western support. You have have, uh, female protesters in Iran, uh, with regards to the hijab. You have – these protests are, are leaderless, they're built for Western support, yet you don't hear that support here in our media or our politicians. And I credit it to Obama being able to wrap himself around the Iran deal to make it to where if you criticize the Iran deal, the JCPOA, you are somehow criticizing Obama. If you criticize the regime, you are somehow criticizing his rapprochement with Iran. And Again, these protests are built for Western support. And, and Rich, I want to ask you, what kind of package would you put together the day after we walk away from the JCPOA that would, that would impact Iran's propaganda machine, the regime's propaganda machine, that would highlight the Supreme Leader's $86 billion fortune that, that he uses to skirt sanctions now? Uh, the people are, are looking for things like this. What kind of package would you put together?
1: Well, it's a great question, and, and it ties into a response I wanted to have to Michael anyways. I think he, he had a great comparison and analogy that we should look at, and that is what US policy was, the evolution of US policy towards the Soviet Union all the way to the eventual demise of the Soviet Union. There are a lot of comparisons. A lot of people have done a lot of writing on that. Three key elements of the Reagan administration uh, in their strategy to bring down the Soviet Union and to see a peaceful change come about and uh, in, 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 in end in communism. Number one was political warfare, ideological warfare. Number two was economic warfare, and number three was a strong military deterrent. You have to have all three of those. You can't just rely on one. Uh, with respect to Iran, the JCPOA itself, if you think about it, again with an analogy to the Cold War, we went through three different ideas of how to relate to the Soviet Union. One was detente, one was containment, and the eventual strategy adopted by the Reagan administration was victory. JCPOA is detente. That's really what it is. And the same criticisms of what we saw under detente with the Soviet Union are what we see exactly playing out with Iran under JCPOA. And at its core, I think you're right, the reason why there's this hesitancy, especially in Europe, to impose even non-nuclear sanctions, which are allowed under the deal. We haven't seen Europe do that on human rights or anything like that. It's because the crux of the deal was about the legitimacy of the regime. It's about the legitimization and normalization of doing business and talking to and and, and being friends with the Islamic Republic and thinking that that's possible and that somehow that's going to normalize the regime and bring them into the world. It hasn't happened. It's not going to happen. And so, you're right, in addition to an economic warfare strategy that, that starts with the central bank, uh, and by the way, the, the idea of economic warfare is not to punish the Iranian people. That is not the goal of our sanctions, has never been. Humanitarian exceptions have always been made to all of our sanctions for food and medicine and agricultural products. The goal is to target the regime and its lifeblood, and uh, with the central bank, this is the same central bank that's funding all of the regimes' activities in Syria and in Yemen and its missile program the IRGC. It is funding the repression of the Iranian people. And when the Iranian people go into the streets and say stop it stop it with Syria, stop it with Yemen, focus on me, focus on Iran. It's the central bank that's doing that. And so there there is a total correspondence between our actions in economic warfare and sanctions and supporting the demonstrators and the protesters and what they're saying. But in order to really wage ideological warfare and political warfare, you do need to to couple a direct targeting of the regime and its corruption, uh, where they're hiding assets. Uh, One of the uh, easy sanctions designations that plays into this, two of them I'll give you, one is the supreme leaders business empire, which which was delisted of sanctions under the nuclear deal, EIKO. Uh, that is outrageous. Uh, after seeing what the repression has looked like in Iran, the worsening human rights situation with protesters in the streets, the fact that we have not reimposed sanctions on the supreme leader's assets is crazy. That should be that should be redesignated today. And number two, we have uh, the Islamic Republic uh, International Broadcasting, the uh, the satellite uh, provider uh, that uh, is is. Is basically the hub, the the government hub of their propaganda machine. Uh, IRIB and, and some of the subsidiaries, Press TV, others, what they do is they record you know, forced confessions under torture of some of these protesters in jail and then put them on TV for propaganda purposes. Yes, I've committed crimes against the regime. They do it inside Iran and they do it on their international broadcasting as well. And we allow it to happen because as some sort of side deal with the Iranians, the nuclear deal, we waive sanctions on IRIB. Those sanctions should come back. That will be a huge sign of solidarity with the people. And as much as oil is the lifeblood of the Iranian economy, IRIB is the lifeblood of the Iranian propaganda machine. Those sanctions should come back. Do you see them coming back? So far, this administration has continued the waivers, uh, and hopefully, uh, as the president considers his May 12th day after, that is a part of, of what he does. Because quite frankly, we shouldn't on May 12th reimpose sanctions in a way where this is about just tearing up the nuclear deal. There is a way to do this combined with political warfare, ideological warfare that says this is about standing with the Iranian people and against the
2: Islamic Republic. Right. Wait, do you want to say something? Yeah, just a really quick point on that. <clears throat> One of the arguments I was first brought out by the Obama administration, and frankly, it's still being made under some in this current administration, is that that the United States and its assets and its military assets in Iraq and Syria and the Arabian Gulf would be extremely vulnerable to retaliatory attacks by Iran if the Iranian government, the Iranian regime, felt that its back was to the wall uh, and that it had no other recourse but to lash out in a massive way, using its proxies, not necessarily directly, against U.S. military assets, bases, and personnel. And that's still a, very much a worry for this administration. I mean, we have Marines in Anbar that are essentially surrounded by Iranian-backed militias. In, Syri- in Syria, I mean, we forget that just last year, President Trump, for the first time, ordered airstrikes against Iranian-backed militias in eastern Syria around al Iraqi militias. Exactly. The Harakad-Nujeba and, um, and others right. that are backed – which included, by the way, Iranian trainers and advisors that were there on the ground. That happened on three separate occasions after the airstrikes in April last year against the Assad regime for, due to its continued use of chemical war, uh, chemical attacks against the Syrian people, which, by the way, are enabled by Iran and Iranian scientists and Iranian know-how via North Korea. So. But there's no easy solution to this. When would Iran lose its
0: European support if it started lashing out? Don't they have to couch that in their response the day after? Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we looked at worst case, best case scenarios uh, with the memo that Rich drafted that went to the NSC, the DOD, and DOS. Worst case scenarios from ballistic missile uh, you know, escalation uh, to reactions in Iraq and Syria. But I would think that Tehran would, would hold back on – showing Europe what we already see. Again, for, tell me if I'm wrong here. I think the JCPOA, in this case, the U.S. assumes all the risks, along with our Sunni regional allies, along with Israel, while, while Europe reaps the benefits, the economic benefits, the New Deal. So that, that is – I think that would anchor Tehran and its reactions. But having said that, what would you see Qasem Soleimani doing the day after in Baghdad? Now.
2: Real quick. That's a million dollar question. Yeah, yeah, but thus far he hasn't done anything. No, he despite hasn't. Despite the airstrikes, exactly. despite the pressure thus far. Right. And again, the Iraqi elections
0: are May twelfth, the same day that we're supposed to walk away from Iran deal. And I think I think it's the day we get leverage with Baghdad again. Again, do you want to pitch yourself with a four hundred billion dollar economy where an egg costs fifty cents, or do you want to go with a nineteen trillion dollar economy? and your Sunni regional allies and go back to your traditional role as a bulwark against Iran. But, but
2: it's a big risk. It's a big risk. For who? For Well, or well for? I mean, if you think about it, I mean, there are some, you know, what are, what's the U.S. willing to absorb, right? Now, the Iranians, do, through asymmetric warfare, can, let's say they wipe out a small U.S. training outpost in eastern Syria and Anbar. Now, the U.S. reaction is more than likely going to be disproportionate, right? But it's a big game of brickmanship. Who's going to blink first on the battlefield?
0: And that would lose European support just like that.
3: It would be over. So, so none, of the, none of these problems can be addressed the way we want them uh, addressed, as long as that regime is in power in terroring Even the Washington Post some years ago said, you want to deal with the Iranian nuclear program? Regime change in Tehran." It's the only way. It is. How do we get there? <laughs> well, we know how to do it. We, we, bet, we I, did it. I've been sitting here for 56 minutes. I'm still trying to figure it out. Well, if we just re- replay what you did with the Soviet Union. Right, right. It, exactly it, what if we like. can defeat the Soviet empire. I mean, it ran us a tiny fraction of that, with the Soviets, the part of the domestic population willing to side with us. Was maybe five or ten percent. Right, the odds were against us in Iran. We probably got eighty percent of the population, maybe more, were willing to side with us and take to the streets and some But we have to lead it. Right,
1: and I would just note because it's very timely, it's in the news. Uh, one thing we should not do if we actually have an intention to try to roll back the regime in the region is prematurely withdraw U.S. forces from Syria. Our presence there, our leverage that that gives us is critical, uh, and uh, it would be tremendously catastrophic to an Iran rollback strategy to bring people home from Syria very quickly and cede that territory to Iran, to Russia, uh, to Hezbollah. Uh, That would be catastrophic regardless of what the president does on May 12th.
0: Right. How do you see uh, sanctions impacting Iran's ballistic missile program? Do you see them accelerating? Do you see them uh, being provocative with what they would do the day after, or do you see them curtailing their...?
4: No, I mean, we've already imposed sanctions on Iran in January. So I think there continues to be room to um, cherry-pick and target Iranian ballistic missile program entities that provide materials for ballistic missile work. Uh, I also think there is a, a further room to foster our missile defense cooperation with Israel, um, our missile defense partnerships with other countries in the Persian Gulf. Um, so, so we do have options. We've been working on these options. Um, and I don't see the Iran deal of kind of fundamentally alterna- altering the dynamics. Uh, perhaps regardless whether it's, it stays or it doesn't. Uh, what, what the Iran deal did for uh, Iran's ballistic missile program is it gave opponents of missile defense um, an argument that now that we have this agreement, Iran is no longer a threat. Right. So we don't have to worry about missile defense. We don't have to worry about the Iranian ballistic missiles. And you know that's demonstrably false um, because they've been continuing the program. They've been continuing ballistic missile proliferation. Uh, they've used ballistic missiles as instruments of state power, uh, and they will continue to do so. Um, so, uh, it you know it would be um, it would be good if. The JCPOA, as in sort of excuse or evidence of um, Iran's good intentions, went away. Um, but if, you, if you've been watching Iranian activities and you don't realize that Iran is a hostile power to the United States, that's such a self delusion that it doesn't matter whether there is JCPOA or not.
1: And I just want to jump in because I think, in addition, there's a key point here. We have just heard today that uh, Chancellor Merkel is going to be coming later in the month uh, add-on right after Macron is here, an all-out last-ditch effort by the Europeans to try to get the President uh, not to reimpose sanctions. One of the key elements that the President outlined on January 12th was regarding the missiles. And And as you mentioned earlier. There is this question of what what kind of missiles are we talking about and what is the penalty for Iran testing or continuing development of those missiles? Uh, The conversations that the Europeans want to have is only on futuristic intercontinental ballistic missiles, which we know Iran is working towards. It's in their future. It's not here today. But they would not even want to talk about all the other nuclear-capable ballistic missiles that are already there, that are ready that are continuing to be developed, continuing to be advanced, precision, uh, payload, uh, things that can wipe out U.S. bases, that can wipe out Saudi Arabia, that can certainly wipe out Israel. And the question that you'd have to ask the European leaders, if I was the president, is why is it that you are willing to tie a snapback of all of our sanctions, of the central bank sanctions, to futuristic testing of an ICBM, but you, Chancellor Merkel, Germany is unwilling to tie the same snapback of sanctions to a ballistic missile that can create the second Holocaust. That makes no sense. That's outrageous. All of Iran's ballistic missiles, nuclear-capable missiles, and its cruise missiles, quite frankly, should be covered by a snapback of sanctions if you're going to try to truly fix the nuclear agreement. If you're unwilling to do that, then I would just stay in Berlin and not bother coming to Washington. It's a good point. So, so I
0: want to ask this question to both Mikhail and Ube. So, you talked about the current fight in Iraq and Syria, what Iran is doing with its land bridge, with its Shia crescent, and then you talked about the upcoming fight, and that that talks about uh, Israel, what what Iran wants to do with Israel, and what I'd like to like to ask both of you is this: a lot of us believe it's an upcoming war between. Israel and Iran. And Iran sort of demonstrated capability to actually punish Israel. And to your point, they've learned from North Korea. North Korean, uh, the North Korean response to anything we do militarily has been to punish South Korea. So they have a deterrent in place. And if you have a deterrent in place that constrains U.S. actions, you get what we have now a nuclear North Korea. Iran has learned this. And I'd like for you to talk about uh, Iran's deterrent with Hezbollah, with their rockets and missiles, and what they've been able to do, uh, if if you can. Because I think Iran has learned a valuable lesson from North Korea, that if you have a deterrent, if U.S. military decision makers are saying, what will Iran do in response to a U.S. attack or an Israeli attack on a nuclear facility? And the answer is, they will decimate Israel with rockets and missiles from Hezbollah's fixed sites. Um, So I'd like for both of you to talk about where where Iran is now with their proxies, where they are now with their ballistic missile capability. And again, to Rich's point, why is Europe okay with allowing rockets that can range Israel? Uh, There's a 2,000 kilometer threshold, right? As long as the rocket doesn't go beyond 2,000 kilometers. And you can range Israel, you can range Saudi Arabia, you can range European countries uh, with that. So I know it's a long question, but, but basically, where's Iran now in its deterrent? And where do you think it will be if the JCPOA stays in place, and if the JCPOA go, goes away, how that impacts? It.
4: Um, so, in the case of North Korea, uh, North Koreans um, nucle- see nuclear weapon as a sort of ultimate guarantee of the regime's survival, and you know I'm sure that's one of the uh, one of the intentions and one of the desires of the Iranian leadership to to have that same uh, sort of guarantee. Because what we've done with US policy, and this goes back to Libya, is we've sent a message which effectively says if you give up your nuclear weapons and ballistic missile program, eventually we're free to come and get you. But if you have nuclear deterrent, our options are much more constrained. Now, the other component of that is, you know, my. my mentor, uh, Keith Payne, one of the foremost thinkers on nuclear deterrence, he would always say um, big ideas are too big to hide. Um, and what, what that means in the case of Iran is we know what their big idea is. They want to destroy Israel. They want to destroy the United States. Um, big ideas are too big to hide. And you know, he always um, gave example of Hitler's Mein Kampf, in which he, he very systematically outlined what his plan was and you would look at it in 1922 and say this guy is crazy he can't possibly mean that yet he managed to enact that plan into action Um, so you know iran having a nuclear weapon would be very dangerous situation for the united states obviously for the region but not only because of the deterrence aspect, but also because countries have different definitions of rationality, because they have different motivations, and they have different goals. And that's something that we kind of lose, lose focus
2: on. F- that, that last point is very important. Now, the Iranian regime may also be convinced that the United States and Israel is, are bent on the destruction of... Not Iran as a country, but the Iranian regime. But Ayatollah Khomeini equates the two, right? His survival, survival of his regime, and the Islamic Revolution, per the 1979 revolution, means for him the continued existence of Iran as a state. So he equates the two. Now, this is regardless, and to be completely bipartisan here, listen: this is this perception maybe regardless of what actions the United States takes. Now, President Obama in 2014, uh, at least according to reports that this was first revealed uh, by the Wall Street uh, Journal uh, Jay Solomon, sent a letter to Ayatollah Khomeini oh, right, right. to try to reassure him of limited US goals in the region, Right, that the US was going to begin airstrikes in Syria, but only against Daesh. They were not going to threaten Ayatollah Khomeini's proxies Uh, in Syria. They were not going to threaten Bashar al-Assad's regime. This is per the reports of what the letter that President Obama sent to Ayatollah Khomeini. Also a small footprint in Iraq of U.S. advisors. Now, the question here is, did this really convince Ayatollah Khomeini that the United States had only limited objectives in the region and were not directly threatening Iranian regime's interests in the region, let alone the existence of the regime itself? I'm highly doubtful. It may have actually enhanced Ayatollah Khamenei's paranoia of U.S. intentions. So my point here is that, regardless of who's in office, both the Iranian regime and, by the way, this goes for the Russians, believe a continuum in American policy. Whether or not you have a Republican or a Democrat, whether it was President Obama or President Trump, interestingly enough. So that's sort of looking, you know, through the looking glass here of what how Tehran perceives. American intentions to be. So we may be stuck in a, in a vicious cycle here right? of, of brickmanship based on misperception, misperceptions of the other side. Now, the Iranians, because of their perception of, of American interests and American policy uh, being geared towards weakening the Iranian regime, and again, remember, this is regardless of whether it was President Bush or President Obama or President Trump. The Iranians are building in a set of redundancies through their proxies on the ground, through forward solid-fuel missile production facilities in Syria, possibly in the Baqa Valley in Lebanon. So it's not, necessarily a far, it's not far-fetched to believe that the Iranians would also be similarly invested in building a redundant covert nuclear weapon production facility that we are not aware of. Or it may, or may, may not even be, a pla- or it may be a contingency plan that has not uh, been operi- operationalized yet by the Iranians. Uh, going back real quick on a, a relevant World War II uh, analogy here is that if the Middle East today is a, is a series of geopolitical uh, geopolitical brinkmanship and bluffs, now remember when Hitler was first coming to power when he moved. The, uh, the Wehrmacht into the then-demilitarized Rhine, uh, Rhine Valley, Rhine, uh, Rhine River Valley, the Allies, France and England, decided not to act because, they, because partly due to an, an assessment that over, uh, overestimated the capabilities of the then-German Air Force, which was still, back in the mid-1930s, still very weak. But there was this general psychological dislocation by the Allies because they believed that the German Air Force would react, would be able to firebomb Paris and London, again, at a time when the German Air Force did not have that capability then. So Europe was partly lost for six years because Hitler was able to bluff his way gradually to uh, to expanding his territory at a time when he militarily would have lost any conflict at that time if the Allies had decided to react early enough. So this goes back to my earlier point, that while the nuclear deal may have averted a conflict at the time, it may very well be setting the stage for a much wider conflict in the region at a time when the Iranians have 20,000 battle-hardened proxies in Syria, well-equipped, who are very well-motivated, who have you know, scored many battlefield victories. Right? So this is a very dangerous and combustible situation both for U.S. forces in Syria and Iraq and for their allies?
1: I do want to give a little bit of a counterpoint. And I think that that's right on some of the escalatory possibilities. But two important things to think about as far as May 13th, right? Not, not October, not, not in a year, but May 13th. Number one, historically, the Iranians do not want to face off against the U.S. directly in a military conflict. That is not in their interest. They have shied away from that. There have been incidents uh, from reporting on the ground uh, within Iran, I'm sorry, within Syria, where the the mere threat of such a direct uh, escalation has changed Iranian behavior. Uh, So that is why a reliance on proxies, on asymmetric threats, is is what the Iranians like to do more. Uh, Secondly, there is a tension here in the day-after strategy of the Iranians that people need to kind of think about and understand and how that plays out. On the one hand, there are a lot of different things that the Iranians could do to raise the costs and try to try to uh, deter the U.S. from continuing down a path of reimposing sanctions and really trying to roll them back in the region. But at the same time, they want to play a victim card, right? They, they want to say, oh, we've been wronged here. We were in this great nuclear deal, and the U.S. walked away, and it's so wrong, and they're violating the deal. Europe, you know, you should be with us. Let's, let's still stay in the deal together and, you know, try to get around U.S. sanctions. And, and so we're still good actors here. You can trust us. We want your money. We want your investment. So there is a tension there. And so we see it already playing out in the, in the threats pre-May 12 from the Iranians. On the one hand, they're talking about how they're going to stand with Europe, and they're going to stay in the deal, and we're going to get around US sanctions, and trying to encourage uh, EU diplomats to say the same thing, which they are. At the same time, you have this nuclear blackmail threats that we see of, you leave the deal, we're, we're racing to the bomb. Well, which one is it? And by the way, I thought that there was a fatwa against
3: building a bomb. So how are you even threatening it? It's a new fault line. Yeah.
4: <laughs>
0: Replacement fault line.
3: Yeah, I just just one thing. Over and over and over again, the war is on. We're in the war now. The, so all these people who keep on saying, well, if we sign, right. or if we don't resign, or if we renew or we don't renew, and so on, then war. That's all crazy. Because the war is, we're in the war. The war is happening right. today and has been all along. They've killed an awful lot of Americans. And well, and by the way, as far as I know, they're still paying uh, big rewards for kidnapping yes. Americans, yes. Iranians, I'm talking about. Yes. Everything that they're
0: doing requires money. Uh, the sanctions will actually limit a lot of that. But supporters of the JCPOA, we've seen a lot of their warnings as well. Uh, Brian Ross wrote the other day in the New York Times that um, if we walk away from the Iran deal, Iran will use its proxies to destabilize Iraq and Syria and Yemen and Lebanon. They're already doing that. Uh, if Iran walks away, they will move towards bomb. They're already doing that. They can either get one in 10 years, or if they cheat, get one in six months. So one of the other things is uh, you know, under the JCPOA, And Rich, I'd like to ask you about this. Europe has been hesitant to invest in Iran. So why would it change when we walked away? Why would they all of a sudden feel that it was okay to do it? I mean, the threat of secondary sanctions, what the US could do. But what would change if we walked away?
1: So I think if you look at at the recent history, there was an uptick in investment going on in Iran from, from Europe, led by Germany. They're by far and away the number one Uh, going both ways uh, from Iran and to Iran. You have the Italians, you have the French, you have the Spanish uh, and the Dutch uh, sort of leading the way in Europe uh, whether it's increasing imports of Iranian oil or trying to export uh, into the Iranian market. That sort of hit this sort of pause button in October when the president decertified the deal and started making his his threats of, you know, maybe I'm going to get out of this deal, worst deal ever, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to waive the sanctions anymore. Well, that causes everybody to stand still and say, okay, whoa, well, what's going on with all of our transactions? Are they going to be caught up in U.S. sanctions? What do we do? And that has led to the currency uh, collapse. That has led to a lot of the destabilization that we've seen over the last few months. Uh, but clearly, the business communities, at least in some of those European countries, want the assurance to go forward. They want to sign contracts, they want to go in. Uh, If there is some sort of mechanism allowed after May 12th, it was an AP report this week that one of the possibilities being considered is to not waive the sanctions, bring back the central bank sanctions, but then create exceptions for Europe. Well, that's worse than the status quo, because that would give a go sign to Europe uh, at least until such time as the Iranians decide that they no longer want this deal. Uh, and you would see economic stability, stabilization of the regime, and the president would really be enriching Iran in, instead of doing the opposite. Uh, whereas if there is a true re-implementation of the sanctions regime, despite the European threats of blocking and trying to evade, the way that our sanctions work today, as opposed to how they did in 1996, is such where if you are a private corporation, if you're a financial institution, and you are being told that you face possible cutoff from the U.S. financial system entirely, not just some fines. I mean, you can't have a business relationship with a U.S. bank. Nobody can go to their ATM and get their money from your bank account when they're here. You can't do transactions. Uh, You're gonna be citing against trying to violate U.S. sanctions, no matter what sort of blocking regulations some diplomat tells you was on the books. Just not going to happen. Now over the long term, do they look for ways to try to evade? Maybe. But the high likelihood is that at some point the Iranians are going to do something that reminds the Europeans, these are bad people. And it's not worth it to look for and use all of our capital to try to evade sanctions. And by the way, the council is not going to be unified on this, just because Paris and Berlin and Rome want to get into Iran doesn't mean that the Eastern European bloc feels the same way in that they are the ones primarily targeted by the increasing range of Iranian missiles. So it's not such an easy picture for Europeans despite their bluster.
2: I'll talk a little bit about the Syrian Scientific Research Center because it's a telling case for the hybrid military and unconventional weapons program in Iran. In in Syria, the Syrian scientific research center, the SSRC, was the uh, center that was in charge of the Al-Kibar nuclear, uh, 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 not weapon, but uh, plant that was bombed. That was was about six months away from becoming operational that we discussed earlier that was subsequently struck by the Israeli Air Force. Now, the Syrian Scientific Research Center is also in charge of ballistic missile production, research, and design in conjunction with the North Koreans and with the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. So when we talk about uh, the instances when the Israeli Air Force has hit SSRC facilities, these facilities are sprawling complexes that don't just include ballistic missile storage, research, and production but could also potentially include WMD, usually chemical weapon uh, production and storage. So it's a very telling case for, for Iran when, at a time when the Iranian Revolutionary Guards are refusing to give access to certain sites that are considered conventional military use only and therefore to be exempt from international inspection. There's no such thing. The Iranian, the Syrian uh, S- uh, scientific research center is modeled based on the Iranian model. In fact, the Iranians and North Koreans helped build the SSRC. And the reason why these facilities are continuously struck by the Israeli Air Force is because Hezbollah also has a role here to play. So when we think of what's necessarily a a military, purely ballistic missile or uh, military, conventional military site, and what's connected to nuclear program, the way that the Iranians and the Syrians and the the, the North Koreans perceive these facilities is in a wholly different fashion than the purely binary uh, system that we have in place today. That makes verification in the long term very prob- uh, problematic.
0: Right. So what I'd like to do now, we, we started a little late. Uh, so we're going to extend seven minutes for more questions. I, I'd like to open it up to the audience, but then I want to have each panelist uh, take about two minutes to close after after that series of questions. Uh, sound good? All right, great. So let's see here. All right. Um, I'll actually, uh, here are the rules. Uh, I'd ask you to identify yourself, wait for one of our uh, presenters with a microphone to come up, and then ask a question. Um, try to keep it to questions as much you know, less so statements. All right.
3: Thank you. Thank you. My name is Ruthie Bloom. Um, I'm a writer and, and live in Israel. Um, in the last three weeks, so the Saudi crown prince called Khamenei worse than Hitler and then opened up the airspace for direct commercial flights between Tel Aviv and India that has to go over Saudi airspace. And John Bolton was appointed. Does this indicate to any of you that there may be a covert oper- military operation underway?
0: Well, I would say this, I would say that you know it was the, the mantra from the Obama administration, it's either the Iran deal or war. And I'll just I'll say something quick, and then I'll p- throw it to the panelists. Uh, what we, based on Michael's point, it was the Iran deal and war. We're, we're already fighting Iran with a lot of their proxies. Um, setting back Iran's nuclear program two decades is an eight-hour air campaign by the United States and Israel. The problem is the Russians are now putting in S-400s in Syria. Iraq is now looking to buy S-400s. Those S-400s are not for Iraq. That's to defend Iranian airspace. And the Iranians are looking at getting S-300s. But again, that deterrent that's in place in Lebanon with Hezbollah and those rockets and missiles, that would have to be part of any campaign as well. If the Iranians are, are, are smart, and they are, they're looking at everything you just mentioned as an indicator of what's to come. At least their intelligence officers are advising their generals that these are the things that are taking place now. The decision makers are being put in place, airspace is being cleared, and we're starting to see a Russian response with the allocation of S-400s to Syria, Turkey, for that matter, and also Iraq. And uh, I, w- I would leave it at that. I mean, as an intelligence officer, I would brief those things that you mentioned. Um, whether we do it or not, it, as long as they think it's a, it's, an, it's a capability, going back to Richard's point, where you have to have... To taunt, you know, diplomatic engagement and also a, a serious military uh, threat on the table.
1: And, and I'll just say, I think what you're seeing is that accidentally, several years later, President Obama has earned his Nobel Peace Prize, and he did so by signing one of the worst deals in history. And what do I mean by that? By going ahead and entering the JCPOA and ceding the Middle East to Iran and all the things we talked about that are happening, the reason why we think on May 12th the president may reimpose sanctions. The moderate Sunni Arab states of the Middle East, led by Saudi Arabia, woke up and said, you know what? We have more in common with the state of Israel than we do with anybody else in this region. And what divides us is far less than, than what unites us. And you know, 70 years now, almost after the Arab-Israeli conflict, The issue of the Palestinians is not a burning issue on the streets of most Arab capitals. And really we learned that after the the recognition of Jerusalem, muted response after everybody thought the entire Middle East was going to blow up. And in order to have a new regional security architecture uh, that encircles Iran uh, and also at the same time takes on Sunni extremism, which is something that the crown prince has pledged to do and is doing. Uh, That is something that could lead to a very new dynamic in the Middle East. Now the one hang-up is there's this thing called the Islamic Republic, and there are Sunni extremists and terrorists, and uh, in order to have that sort of phase-in of a new world order in the Middle East where there is Arab-Israeli peace, there is normalization of ties uh, between uh, the Saudi Arabia's and and UAE's and Bahrain's uh, and Israel, Uh, There has to be continued dialogue, has to be continued work on that. They're moving in the right direction. Uh, But I think that Jerusalem and Riyadh see the world very similarly right now with the threats that they all face. Uh, and, uh, And the crown prince has taken a lot of very bold
2: steps, and that should be encouraged. The problem here is that while Iran and its Shia allies are very much aligned, the Arab states and the Sunni states are still bickering amongst each other. They're very much divided. And the Iranians are successfully bleeding out Saudi and its allies in Yemen. By really being able to use their their proxies, the Iranians are outflanking the Sunni states. And at the same time, the Sunni states amongst themselves are divided, both within the Arabian Gulf, amongst the current ongoing uh, crisis between Qatar and uh, the Saudi axis, and between the Sunni Arab states and Turkey. So within this division, Iran is able to successfully unify its forces and play off the infighting amongst the counterbalance, the Sunni counterbalance. I mean, when Ayatollah al gives an order, it doesn't matter if that fighter is Bahraini, if that fighter is Iraqi or Afghan. On the battlefield, they follow those orders as if it was a direct order you know, from the Lord himself. In the case of the Sunnis, Different, whole, whole, different, whole different story. So I think now when it comes to leaning more on the Sunni states to counterbalance Iran rather than depending on a perpetual, forever American military presence in Iraq and Syria, yes, I think that is the right way to go. And I, and I, I commend personally as, as an analyst the Trump administration to put place more pressure on the Sunni states to do so. But let's be real here. They're a long, long ways away from the type of unity of action and organization that the Iranians have been able to establish over the past two decades uh, from Iraq to the Arabian Gulf to Syria and Lebanon.
4: Well, I sure hope that we have covert operations going on as we speak. And I sure hope that they will be successful in what their objectives are.
3: Yes, keep in mind that uh, the, uh, self-reclaimed smart people in both uh, Israeli and Western capitals, always will tell you th- if you only knew what was really going on. <laughs> then, and they're doing it today. Right. Right. And again, everything that
0: we just talked about is happening under the protections of the JCPOA. So I'm going to take a series of three questions here. This this lady here, somebody show up, and then I'll get to you.
5: Uh, Thank you. Uh, This is Faye Mokhtedir. I'm a member of uh, Aslanity Council, National Iranian-American Council. Uh, My question is – my mind was buggling listening to uh, the discussion today, but uh, my question is for Mr. Ledeen. Uh, JCPOA was the most comprehensive uh, nuclear deal that United States had made in history. And uh, for the Iranian people, uh, this was a uh, goodwill gesture, and they were hoping that this would lead to some economic prosperity for Iran, Uh, and uh, thinking that uh, the United States is not complying with that uh, is probably what's why 57% of the Iranians went to the poll and elected Mr. Rouhani uh, instead of opting for a regime change. Uh, My question to you is, uh, if the U.S. is not going to honor this uh, deal, which was a goodwill gesture from the United States, was the initial step for the Iran and the United States to a relationship why would they even bother to ask you guys for help for regime change all they have to do is look at the neighboring countries and see that every country that United States had tried to change the uh, leader leadership there had created a stateless country uh, it's like asking me to go with a doctor who all of his patients had died in the uh, hospital and asking them to could you please operate on me I mean it, it's why would they want United States to be, Aid them for any sort of a uh, help in the regime change. Thank you.
0: Okay, so that's one, and we'll take uh, the gentleman here, the per- oh, wait, wait for somebody's, please.
2: Uh, Dr. Ledeen, you said my
3: my name is Luis Morano. I'm currently unaffiliated. Uh, you said that Iran is at war with us. Obviously, Iran likes, lacks the capability to occupy the North American landmass. What would victory look like for them?
0: Okay, and then this, this lady here. So that's a attack on the U.S. question from Miss Ovenden.
4: Hello, everyone. My name is Mai. I'm a student um, currently here in the um, East Coast. Um, I just have a question for uh, Richard, and it's open for all the panelists. Um, how would you impose or reimpose sanctions on the regime, but not impose that on the people? Um, since if you, especially considering their reaction after the um, after the POA went into effect in 2015 and Um, they were rejoicing in the streets and and all that. So how would you impose that on the regime but not on the people?
0: Okay, and the gentleman in the hat there. Yeah, Warren Manison. It's a simple question. Nobody mentioned the United United Nations in this discussion, but the ballistic missile testing that's been going on in Iran uh, does not violate some kind of an agreement with the UN and, Has the U.N. ever done anything? I wouldn't expect it to, but has it ever done anything? Has it taken any action, or is it just totally silent in letting Iran test ballistic missiles
3: along with its ally, North Korea?
0: All right. So we have four questions. One from NIAC. Why are we betraying Iran by thinking about walking away from the JCPOA? Um, The other, uh, also for Ledeen, uh, was... Um, what kind of threat is there actually on the United States to reach sanctions? And the last question. So we'll go with you, Michael, for the first two.
3: Well, uh, I mean, the question over here from this woman is not a question but a provocation. So I'm sorry you've wasted your time coming here today to voice the line of your friends in Tehran. It, it, we are not the ones uh the, the reason why the Iranian, I'll people, send an email to Trita Parsi later. Yes. The, the reason why uh, the Iranian people look to us for help support guidance uh, in carrying out a revolution against the regime is because they hate the regime. It's not, it's not a—no, you've spoken, so just please sit there quietly for a moment. Well, that never and, works. Right. So we'll go to the next question. Uh, the question, what does, uh, what does victory look like from the run-in? Uh, the United States withdrawing from the world arena, uh, becoming an isolationist uh, country, uh, stop speaking out on behalf, on behalf of freedom and, and democracy around the world, stop challenging— uh, their tyranny uh, wherever they set foot, and so forth. That's what it looks like. And, ev- and eventually, in the fullness of time, physical domination of the North American landmass, right? Just what it's always been, what victory always looks like. And just one final uh, line uh, piece, which we all desire, Peace is not the opposite of war. Peace is the result of war. And uh, peace happens when a war is fought and one side beats the other. And the winning side imposes terms on the loser. And those terms are called peace and are generally hammered out at a peace conference and sometimes take the form of a peace treaty. So the language tricks us into thinking that it's something more. And again, I think Rich kind of talked about the sanctions package
0: being focused yeah. on the regime and not the people by targeting the CBI, targeting the Supreme Leader's
1: assets. That's right. And, and I'll kind of take two questions at once. Um, I've been honored to work uh, in support of the democracy efforts and human rights in Iran for a decade. And I have worked directly with many Iranian dissidents and political prisoners of conscience and ethnic and religious minorities uh, who are tormented and thrown in jail uh, and threatened with death uh, for many, many years. And I will just say you and NIAC do not speak on their behalf because I have heard their voice and what they have always asked for is our support. Uh, And I'll never forget a time that I was in a congressional office working uh, in, in preparation for the appropriations bill in uh, state foreign ops uh, in which we annually appropriate some money for democracy programs in support of of the Iranian people. And uh, this was almost 10 years ago. And uh, NIAC came into my office and said, we just want to tell you, you got to zero out the Iran democracy program in foreign ops because it uh, is very bad for the Iranian people to uh, provide any public funding in support of their democracy efforts. You're just going to hurt the people. You know, you just are really targeted, uh, just, you know, go from 40 million down to zero. And all I could think about was having studied the Soviet Jewry movement in the Soviet Union, how many times people had said during the Cold War, do not enact sanctions, do not try to work with the dissidents, do not help the human rights community, because the regime will take it out on them and they will suffer for it. And if you want to ask Natan Sharansky if he thought that was the right thing to do, I I ask you to do that, because he will tell you absolutely not. Now with respect to our sanctions policy, the Iranian people are our greatest asset. And we do not target the Iranian people. We have no – we have no quarrel with them. Quite frankly, based on the youth of the Iranian people and their attempted connections to the West, this is a society that, that, that should be and wants to be friendly with the United States, but for their leaders. And so our policy, when it targets the central bank of Iran, when it targets government banks, when it targets the supreme leader's empire, this is about the lifeblood that keeps the Islamic Republic in business of repressing its people. And when we say to the Iranian people, if the central bank of Iran sanctions are coming back, this is the bank that is paying the people coming out to the streets to shoot you. And if we are going to go after the Supreme Leader's assets, we are doing that because he is stealing from your pocketbooks. And that's what this regime does. This is about the corruption and the repression and all the illicit activities that come from that. We talk about missiles. We talk about terrorism. We talk about regional expansion. We talk about a nuclear program. These are symptoms of a disease. And the disease is called totalitarianism. It's called repression. It's called the Islamic Republic. Great. Uh, We had Trader
0: Parsi on this stage. We had uh, the JCPOA JCPOA under the Trump administration, and I had him on this stage, and and there was a lot of protest about having him here, but I'm a football fan. I wanted to defeat the Philadelphia Eagles in Texas Stadium, you know? Uh, So he accused me of being pro-ISIS because I was anti-IRGC. And I said, I can be both anti-ISIS and anti-IRGC. Can you? Can you condemn the IRGC Quds Force on this stage right here? Can you condemn the besiege? Can you con- condemn the regime for what it's done to the Iranian people? And he deflected. He couldn't do that. So I don't know how Nayak represents the people that are being oppressed by the besiege, by Mohammad Rezanakdi, his, his predecessor, the person that took his place, and, and not be able to condemn that.
2: Um, good. When we, speak of, when we speak of normalization and goodwill, we have to look at what are the con- two minutes what the consequences what the, the regional consequences have been, especially in Syria, as a result of not only the deal, but the process of negotiating the deal. And one of those consequences is the legitimization of the plausible, plausibly deniable use of advanced chemical weapons. Remember, since the deal was signed between President Obama and, uh, and President Putin to allow Bashar Assad to get away with the use of his chemical weapons in 2013 against his own people, those weapons have been used again time and time and time again. And the Assad regime has been able to concoct a plausibly deniable story every single time. So imagine the worst case scenario here, where let's f- f- Let's look at a scenario where Hezbollah, or a proxy of Hezbollah in Syria, uses a Phylok II modified rocket uh, to launch a chemical weapon strike into Haifa. And then they blame it on Daesh. And just like the Hariri assassination, they'll have a a detailed, plausibly deniable story that they'll even have a confession video of of Daesh. They'll they'll set it all up. this is one of the extremely dangerous and unforeseen byproducts of the desire to reach a deal with Iran regardless of the consequences and regardless of Iran's hegemonic aspirations in Syria and in the wider Levant. Did you want a a,
0: a Um, statement just to close? Uh, So
2: the the
4: problem with the UN uh, Security Council is that it cannot agree on anything when you consider who sits on it that makes perfect sense. Uh, so, yeah, there are uh, UN Security Council resolutions uh, about the Iranian ballistic missile program, but their enforcement is non existent, so to speak. And so, what the US has been doing is impose sanctions unilaterally.
3: Michael, would you like to just make a final comment and then we'll wrap up? Yeah, thanks for coming. I think it was an extremely good discussion. I know we covered
0: a lot of topics, so time always gets away from us. I'd like to be respectful of everybody's time. Thank you for coming to the Hudson Institute today. Thanks to my panelists for
2: being here.